The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus exclaimed, I bless you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for hiding these things from the learned and the clever and revealing them to mere children. Yes, Father, for that is what it pleased you to do. Everything has been entrusted to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, just as no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are overburdened, and I will give you rest. Shoulder my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Yes, my yoke is easy and my burden light. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So raising up a fallen world is a light burden, Jesus says. Um, There's three themes in today's readings that sort of caught me. I won't speak on all of them because it's too much and I've been warned not to do that. But but, but I'll just touch on them before I move on to the third theme that I do want to dwell on a little bit. Um, There's the theme that we heard from uh, Lisa just reading from Romans about living a spiritual life. We tend to dichotomize the body and the spirit, but you are a singular person. You're an integrity of body and spirit. Therefore, it's not about living a completely spiritual life divorced from your body or vice versa. It's about directing your body in the spirit. You know, Paul says, um, the spirit lives in you. In, in your what? In your body. Uh, the spiritual life is a bodily life. This is our Catholic thought. That's one thing that I think is worth our meditation. It's worth really putting our roots down into that love for the body that God has. God loves your bodies, and, and we ought to as well, properly. Uh, there's the other theme of being a child in the kingdom or a child to who the kingdom belongs. And this is very profound indeed. I think it means a lot more than we might originally think of what exactly Jesus is referring to as a child. It's not just someone who hasn't grown up yet. It's, it's something far more beautiful and profound. It's something that all of us are meant to be from the age of eight to the age of 88. You don't grow out of that kind of spiritual childhood. But um, gathering those up for, for just a moment in our minds, I want to rather focus on this idea of kingship, which tends to jar us a little bit. You know, it's awkward to be called a king. But that's what you are. We're going to explore that a little bit. Um, We heard it in the first reading Denise read for us. Listen to this again and tell me, if you want to, tell me, what comes to mind when you hear it? Because we hear it at a particular time in the year. See now, your king comes to you victorious, triumphant, humble, and riding on a donkey. Suddenly the mind is taken back to a certain time in the liturgical year, isn't it? It's Palm Sunday all over again, and our king coming to us, not as we'd expect, but in this very, very strange, humble fashion. And this is the king of kings. Kingship means something that we don't really understand yet. So let's explore this kingship. And, and for us, as usual, it falls in a particular context. If we explore our kingship, we necessarily anchor that in the prophetic office, the, the priestly office. 
Remember when you were baptized, you were baptized into the offices of priest, prophet, and king. That's what each and every one of you are by virtue of the waters that you were either submerged in or standing under as it was trickled over your head. So let's start with the priesthood then. What does it mean to be a priestly people? Well, foremostly, it means we are a people who sacrifice. We offer sacrifice. We find ourselves in this beautiful, sort of unexpected exchange of gifts between us and God, and we sacrifice um, back to God. God has given us our life, and then he's filled that life with all sorts of blessings. And therefore, in thanksgiving, and this is the priestly act, we offer all we have and all we are back to God. This is a priestly function. You can't do it in any other way. It's a beautiful privilege that we have. Look at the Eucharist, for example, because this is not just a kind of spiritual tennis match that goes back and forth in vain. It goes back and forth, sure, but it's continually raised in pitch. It's continually intensified, and I think the Eucharist is a beautiful um, analogy of that. The spiritual life itself is a kind of exchange of these gifts. Here's the Eucharist in a nutshell. God gives us an earth and he places us in it. We till it and we offer him the fruit. God blesses the fruit and our ingenuity, our human creativity, and we produce all sorts of rich foods, bread from the ground, kneaded and baked and broken, wine that is plucked and stamped and fermented and poured, oils that are harvested and pressed and refined, salts which are either sun-dried from the sea or mined from rocks, herbs, uh, animal meats and other products, woods and other stones and other materials which we use to build beautiful, glorious structures like this, or some of the stunningly glorious cathedrals that we've come to, to grace. See, everything we touch can be sacrificed, and, and it must be. We must somehow put it in that dynamic of gift, of receiving and then giving back to God um, so that God can continually raise it. What we give to God, he gives back again, but it's changed. And the Eucharist is a prime example of that. Sacrifice, finally, is a holy thing, and it's a happy thing. If we get caught thinking that, oh, we're called to sacrifice, sacrifice, it's a miserable task, we've somehow missed the, the core of what it is. It must be a happy thing. A priestly people happily live that sacrificial life. Secondly, what makes a prophetic people? Priest, prophet. Well, there's a reason, I think, we have two ears and only one mouth. And there's a reason also that our voices fatigue if they're overused, but our ears never do. So long as we have the desire to listen, we can listen endlessly. Um, this is because being a prophetic people means that we're a listening people. We listen long and hard and deep. We listen without the desire to respond necessarily. We listen... Um, in a certain synodal way, this is a bit of a charged word, it's a word that we use a lot recently, but uh, a prophetic people are, properly speaking, a synodal people. Um, what are we listening to? We're listening to everything, but we're listening sort of through everything for the still, small voice of God, which is constantly speaking, gently directing, encouraging, blessing. We listen to everything out there exteriorly, but we listen interiorly as well. We listen to the, own, the, the stirrings within our own hearts. And I think when we do that, a truly prophetic people measures the inner 
voice with a healthy degree of skepticism because if we're listening for God, we're not chiefly interested in our own opinions at that point. The person who strives to be a prophetic interior listener must continually ask God, is that you or is that me? If it's me, at least I know you can hear me chattering away, so I'm going to shush for a second. Oh, I thought something else. Is that you? No, that's still me. You know, you have to continually, I guess, check and challenge yourself as you listen. God is like the perfect gentleman. He doesn't actually talk over us. Not, not usually, anyway. If he does, something dramatic is about to happen. Um, so this is what a prophetic people must do. And then, having listened well, the prophetic people finally speak. They speak confidently with truth because they've heard everything out. Um, they speak with trembling, in a sense, but they speak after a long, long exercise of waiting um, and attending. Some weeks ago, there was a diocesan gathering. It was an in-service. The bishop called uh, for that, and some of the people in the room here from education uh, were there, along with people from Centre Care and people from diocesan administration offices and, and the clergy as well. Um, and the speaker, he was a visiting theologian from Boston, I mentioned him, I think, a few weeks ago. Um, he, he was pitching synodality at its best. Now, I think if, we, if, we've, if we've been monitoring the, the life of the church at, at large and at wide, we've seen synodality sort of scarily veer off course a little bit, and that, and that can be quite unnerving for us as church. But he pitched it in a way that I, I hadn't heard, pitched it with a lot of sophistication. So on the second day, there was opportunity to get up and speak, and I, I went to the microphone and I said, look, I think I'm captured by this idea of synodality. I think I like what it can and what it must be, which, which is a tall, a tall idea. Um, but that's what, it, that's what it's meant to be. In a, in a clever way, everything seems to convalesce on what synodality is. It's a church that listens, okay, but we listen to every single sphere everywhere to try and sew threads together, to try and find where there's overlaps, where things cross-pollinate, etc., etc. You know, it's a, it's a radical kind of listening. It's, it's almost an insane kind of listening. Um, but I confessed, and I still confess this, there's a, there's a discomfort with the, the audacity that we might have to say, I've heard God say X, Y, or Z. Because think about this, this is a big thing to say. Imagine saying we have a kind of, um, let's say, magisterial access to the voice of God. Well, why do we need a magisterium then? Why do we have a church that tells us stuff if we can all just go directly to the tap and turn it on and drink without any concern? Now, this is a serious concern to have. Um, so I said to the, the people gathered, as if I have any authority to say this, I said, look, if we're going to try and be synodal, um, we're going to have to become masters of prayer, like immediately. We better learn how to shut up that interior cacophony and weed out all our own silly opinions and priorities listening to them as we do, but then place them to the side, and then press deep into the heart of God and listen so that we can confidently say, as they said in the book of Acts, we've deliberated, we've prayed, we've made this decision, and God agrees. That's a tremendous thing to say, but that's what the church is sort of being invited to say in these days. It ought to make us tremble, really. It's nothing to be taken lightly. Um, to be a prophet is what we are, but to be a false prophet is, is a terrifying thing. In the Old Testament, you'll remember, the penalty for false prophets was 
not a small thing. They were put to death. Uh, I wouldn't want anyone in the modern age to be guilty of being a false prophet. Okay, finally then, in the context of those two, we have kings. And I'll say it very plainly. You are a king by virtue of your baptism. Priest, prophet, absolutely king as well. Um, and ladies as well. Uh, we don't baptize you priestess, prophetess, queen, because it's not about your gender. It's about Jesus, the eternal priest. That's who we've been grafted into. That's what baptism does to us. Therefore, we are sharing in the one singular priesthood of Jesus. I know all of this we know, but it's worth recapturing it because the readings are inviting us now to exercise that priestly office, that prophetic office, that kingly office. Every single one of us, we're called by name. None of us is exempt. All of us are going to have to share that yoke and plow that, uh, that, that field that the Lord calls us to. I want to say one last thing in closing because um, just like just like synodality can either be a wonderful um, endeavor for the church or a, or a kind of horrible self-deception, our priesthood, our prophethood, and our kingship can veer off course if it's um, disintegrated from each other. You know, if I have a kind of repulsion of my kinghood and I'm saying, no, 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 I'm just going to be priestly and prophetic, it, it changes into something else. The three belong together, like faith, hope, and love like Father, Son, and Spirit. It's a, it has a triune dynamism together and set apart. It's like a kingdom that falls, you know, that, that, uh, that warning that Jesus gives us. So listen to this. This is the proper dynamic that we would place our roots into our priestly, prophetic, and kingly office. If someone is a priest and not simultaneously a prophet and a king, imagine this for a second, priest, but not simultaneously prophet and king, then their priesthood does become masochistic. It's all about suffering. Give, give, bleed, bleed, cry, weep, lay my life down. Does that sound healthy? That can't be what Christ is calling us to. That's not even what the cross is. Um, if our prophetic office is not simultaneously priestly and kingly, then we become narcissistic. We're just obsessed with our own voice, our own opinions, being heard. This, as well, is not what Christian prophecy is. Far, far from it. This is what we see when we scroll social media and there's all sorts of annoying, you know, endless uh, tirades of people's opinions. Who cares? That's not prophecy for us. Uh, we don't have to listen to that, and we certainly don't want to be a part of it. Thirdly, then, and this is the point for today, if our kingship which is a fearful thing because it means authority and power and governance and sovereignty and all of that. If our kingship is not simultaneously priestly and prophetic, then we become like kings who are obsessed with the comfort of our throne or the power of our scepter. We swing between being an absentee, often the comfort of the highest tower of the palace, or being a tyrant who's among the people only to boss them around. This is what the world and I think the church fears in its kingship. Because I, I hear this. There's this recoiling, oh no, we're not kings, no. But we are. It doesn't solve the issue to dismantle our kingdom. It doesn't solve the issue to take kinghood off the, off the table. That's what you are. That's your, that's, your deepest identity is your baptism. You can't take this part out of it. 
I can't as a priest and you can't as a baptized person. And I can't as a baptized person either. So don't be jarred by the fact that you are a king, but don't let it puff up your ego either. Remember Christ's words when he was being questioned by Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And remember the throne that he happily went to mount, which is the cross. We keep it in the forefront of our gaze every time we gather here. When James and John asked Jesus about thrones to his left and his right, they didn't get the answer they were expecting, I don't think. They weren't called up into the comfort of the throne, but they were called down into the service of the king. This is the kind of king that Jesus is, and, and us too, therefore, who share in his life. We who live in the spirit, we who are children sharing each other's burdens, we who are shouldering the Lord's yoke, helping him by all means to raise a fallen world, we who are co-heirs in his kingdom.